Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Neil McCluskey takes aim at college accreditation. David Keating talks about regulating speech through the tax code. Sheikha Dalmia considers state-based work visas. And economist Tim Harford talks about the Indiana Jones of economics. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Inequality is a hot topic in public policy circles uh, these days, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, both income and wealth inequality, talking with Brink Lindsay, Vice President for Research here at the Cato Institute and author of Human Capitalism, and Garrett Jones, BB&T professor at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So just to get started here, there's one distinction that uh, that I feel like is important to make. You can tell me just how important and that is the distinction between uh, what people are up in arms about with respect to income inequality and wealth inequality. The people seem to make a lot of points using one or the other, and I think those concepts are, are confused. Yes, that's a great point. So income is, roughly speaking, what a person's earning in a given year. You know, the wages, the interest, the dividends, the things you report on a 1040. Your wealth is basically all of the stuff you own, your stocks, your bonds, it's your home, your real estate. Um, so wealth is a stock variable. It's something that will, will change not too much from year to year unless, unless there's a stock market crash. And the trends uh, on wealth inequality and income inequality are quite different. Most of the uh, debate and focus of attention in the United States uh, in recent years has been on income inequality. But people talk about wealth inequality too. It turns out wealth inequality is much starker than income inequality because lots of people have no wealth at all and maybe even have negative wealth. They're in debt. Uh, so the differences are bigger. Uh, but the trends are quite different. Uh, basically, wealth inequality has been more or less flat uh, for uh, 140 years. Uh, that is, our wealth inequality today, the percentage of total wealth accounted for by the top 1% is about the same as it was in uh, 1870. It went up in the early decades of the 20th century, came back down again during the Depression, mm -hmm. has gone up a little bit since 1970, but not nearly the oscillations that you see on income inequality. So the stories are quite different. Mm -hmm. Now, when people like uh, Robert Reich, for example, who's, who's made this one of his uh, pet ideas, he talks about the 50s and 60s and says this was this was the golden age. This is when most good things were happening, when you had CEOs who were earning not too many multiples above the average worker. Uh, and now we're reaching a, a time period that is very similar, he says, to the years leading up to the stock market crash and the Great Depression. Brink, well, you've written about this. Yeah, as I've said before, it's a peculiar fact of politics today that both the left and the right are pining for the 1950s. The only difference is that the uh, uh, the left wants to work there and the right wants to go home there. So the right is longing for the days of Ozzie and Harriet domesticity. Uh, the left is longing for the days of relative income inequality, strong unions, uh, activist interventionist government, etc. Uh, the truth is that this post-war quarter century from 1945 to 1970 is a very unusual period in American history in a lot of different respects. Uh, and in one particular respect, incomes at the bottom were growing faster than incomes at the top. And so uh, progressives tend to look back uh, as, uh, at that period as the good old days. Yeah. And so it's interesting that both left and right think that their preferred policies will get them back to the 1950s or 60s. 
Oh, it, so it may be something that's completely off the uh, off the radar. There may be different policies or different forces in the economy that made that such a special time. When we take a look at a lot of infographics that get produced about this, there's uh, the popular uh, method for displaying this is to say, here's how much money this uh, group of high earners earned then, and here's how much money relative to everybody else this group of high earners earned today. Typically, it's the 1%, the top 10%, something like that, or the 0.1% in, mm-hmm. in some cases. Does that... Is that an accurate picture of of what we're seeing with respect to incomes? So there's one question. There's there's a sort of unspoken assumption in those comparisons across time periods that it's the same people we're talking about, uh, that there's a continuity and there's a group of people who are the top 1% 10 years ago and they're still the top 1% today. And so look at how much more money they make today than they did 10 years ago. Whereas, in fact, the occupants of the top 1% change over time, and there may be considerable turnover. Now, I'm sure there's continuity. Uh, the top 0.1% is filled with corporate executives and, uh, and uh, financiers and artists and uh, athletes and entertainers. Uh, and some of those folks have great runs for year after year after year after year. But lots of people have one great year or a couple of great years, uh, and they show up in the top 1% for that time. Uh, so. Uh, it's, it, it is false to think that there is this gaggle of people that are the top 1% and they are the, they, it's this set of individuals who have been uh, riding this wave over the past generation. It's a much larger group. Yeah. So if you look at annual data, you'll see a lot of people in the top 1% who are there because they, they sold a home in California or New York and then moved to Florida or Arizona. Uh, so one, one number that you often hear that's actually accurate is there are 17% of the population is in the top 1%. At one at, point or another. At one point or another, yes. All right. So, uh, Brink, you've written in in your book and elsewhere, uh, Human Capitalism is the is the book, uh, that the divide between this 1% and 99% that was popularized a few years ago may be missing the, the bigger break in terms of who the wealthy are and who they are not. Well, there's a lot of different ways to think about income inequality. Uh, but uh, the one that gets the most attention is the 1% versus 99%. And so the idea that there are uh, incomes at the very top of the scale are running away from everybody else. Um, and uh, <clears throat> no doubt part of the reason why that uh, grabs our attention is because it focuses us on a relatively few people and their gaudy numbers uh, attract attention. Um, but uh, from my perspective, uh, that is uh, a, a much less interesting and important social issue uh, than another dimension of inequality, basically skills-based inequality, which could be called 30% versus 70% inequality. That is the 30% of people who are highly skilled, more or less the people who have college degrees versus everyone else. Here too, we've seen an income divergence and a divergence in a lot of other things like participation in the workforce, uh, uh, family structure, divorce rates, uh, everything from exercise to voting, differences along educational lines are opening up that didn't used to be there before. Uh, I think that's a much bigger deal uh, than, the, than the fact that the super rich are pulling away from the merely affluent. Yeah, and most of that rise in inequality, that sort of skills-based inequality, seems to happen during recessions. Um, that's when the labor market hollowing occurs. My colleague Tyler Cowan calls that uh, labor market polarization. Other people do as well. And so what happens is that it's not just, although it's especially uh, highly educated jobs, it's not just those. It's the real distinction is routine work versus non-routine work. 
So a person who's a plumber or an electrician, those kinds of jobs can be growing, whereas people who are doing more routine manual labor, those jobs are just vanishing. And that, I mean, just at a very basic level of what you bring to labor, that is the skills you bring to labor, that would mm -hmm. seem to be a, a logical consequence. Mm -hmm. So there's actually, I mean, one of the interesting facts that I just uh, was reviewing today is that among high school dropouts, there's labor market polarization. Because high school dropouts who are doing more or less mentally skilled um, manual labor uh, can, see, can, have, can have quite good careers. And high school dropouts who are just doing routine work, they're finding the demand for their skills just vanishing. The story behind the rise in skills-based inequality is a relatively straightforward one. Uh, Lawrence Katz and Claudia Golden uh, told the story in this book, uh, The Race Between Education and Technology. Uh, basically, as the economy grows and develops, uh, it gets more complex, and the demand for uh, highly skilled people who can handle this complexity goes up over time. And over the past uh, generation or so, the demand for skill has risen faster than the supply. That is, the economy is demanding highly skilled people who can run all of these complex affairs, could do all this non-routine kind of work, think on their feet, um, and can't be re uh, replaced easily uh, either by uh, automation or by offshoring. Um, and uh, uh, yet our society, our communities, our families, our schools are not producing those skilled workers in the quantity needed. Therefore, the price of highly skilled labor is being bid up uh, because of its relative scarcity. Uh, to me, this is a problem. It means that there are potential opportunities in American life that are not being uh, taken advantage of because people are not being uh, raised, educated, trained to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. That to me is a real uh, social deficit that uh, cries out for attention. Uh, it's a, an entirely different matter in my mind than, again, uh, the comparisons between the obscenely and super rich. Uh, just to put it in concrete terms, the difference between me and a hedge fund manager, maybe he makes a thousand times more than I do uh, in, in a good year. Uh, and yet in the things that I think really count in terms of having challenging, interesting work, some satisfaction from stretching yourself and testing your abilities, a sense of status and earned success from, from accomplishing things, I feel like I'm in completely the same boat uh, as the hedge fund manager. I don't envy him a bit. Between me and a telemarketer, maybe there's a five to 10 uh, fold uh, income difference. Uh, so much, we're much closer than I am with a hedge fund manager. And yet, in the things that really count, challenging, interesting, mm -hmm. fulfilling work that gives satisfaction and status, we're miles apart. So to me, this skills-based difference uh, is much bigger deal than huge income differences between highly skilled people. And something like this is going to matter in the future as well, where we need to decide how we're going to get the kind of people who have the skills we care about. I tend to think that one important force is that's pushing us in the wrong direction is the, the continual encouragement of college education for more and more of the populace, whereas many of these non-routine manual jobs, these mentally demanding manual jobs, they're considered low status in our culture, but can be, high, can, can be both A, rewarding, and B, pay really well. Yeah, and let me just say that uh, although I use uh, educational credentials, namely a college degree, as a proxy for being highly skilled, uh, they're not the same thing, uh, and it does not follow from the fact that highly skilled people are uh, uh, are in the catbird seat these days that we must then churn out more and more people with BAs. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, I think Neil McCluskey has pointed out and, and other research has shown that uh, so many of the jobs that uh, young people who've just earned BAs are getting don't require a college degree. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Thomas 
Piketty or Piketty, depending on uh, who you hear pronounce it, uh, his book Capital in the 21st Century has become sort of a cause celeb for many, uh, especially here in Washington, D.C. What essentially is uh, his argument? Uh, uh, Garrett, I know you've, you've reviewed the book. What, what is his argument? What do you think he gets right and wrong? Well, he makes two big arguments. One, he's, he and his co-authors have done painstaking work collecting long-term data on wealth inequality and income inequality for basically all the rich countries. And we should really be thankful to them for that because um, they helped settle a debate that we've been wondering about for a long time. Uh, but uh, more importantly, in his book, he draws out policy conclusions from this. Um, no, after noting that wealth inequality seems to be increasing and that income inequality seems to be increasing in the rich countries, he draws policy conclusions saying that we can't let this happen because it will hurt our democracy. He talks about the idea of the 1% or the 0.1% owning more and more as a, quote, terrifying prospect. And I think we should wonder whether that, how terrifying that is to have uh, more and more uh, of our wealth controlled by that elite. And he, he's willing to push in some very radical policy directions that uh, I think are not really well backed up by his research. The big argument that is getting everyone's attention and getting economists to dig into uh, is this kind of law of history that he believes he has identified that there is this inevitable tendency of market economies to tend towards ever greater concentrations of wealth and particularly inherited wealth over time. Uh, and that the, uh, uh, the fact that the 20th century didn't go that way is only due to uh, colossal disruptions of world war and great depression. Um, uh, so he's identified this kind of law of history. It, it, it projects out into the well into this century what's going to happen. People love crystal balls and people love bold prognostications. So everyone's having a field day uh, uh, sorting through this thesis. But this thesis, as he admits in the book, has nothing to do uh, with or almost nothing to do with the rise of income inequality in the United States over the past 30 or 40 years, which is why everybody cares about his book, at least here. Uh, as he admits, uh, that uh, phenomenon, the rise in income inequality, is being driven by labor income, not by the buildup of, uh, not by the fact that wealth is growing faster than incomes. Or, uh, so, uh, and in particular, he says that uh, this rise in overall income inequality is being driven by uh, rapid gains in the top 0.1% of earners, uh, and that those uh, people are predominantly corporate executives. So to me, my takeaway from this analysis, assuming all of his data and, uh, uh, to be accurate, uh, is that inequality is this kind of incredible shrinking social problem that instead of being this, this phenomenon that is changing the fundamental character of American society, it's about 300,000 guys and how much they get paid. Uh, so it's fundamentally uh, corporations are now paying uh, executives more than they used to. Uh, part of that is probably due to the decrease in tax rates. Uh, that is, it's easier to bid for top talent from some other company now if 90% of your bid no longer goes to Uncle Sam. Um, so that, I'm sure, is going on. Also, they've, uh, corporations have been paying executives much more in long-term incentives with options and stock ownership than just with salary. And they've done that at a time of a huge increase in stock market ca capitalization in the United States. So here is a story of executive compensation. Either they're doing it right or they're doing it wrong or it's above board or it's corrupt. Boards of directors sort of in on in cahoots with executives to pay each other a lot of money. So there's this story about 
executive compensation, and either it's being done well and justly or poorly and, or unjustly, and we can sort that out. But then that's the whole inequality story. Uh, so to me, this is uh, it's the interesting and underreported aspect of Piketty's book is how narrow the issue of income inequality in the United States really turns out to be by his analysis. Yeah, and, and a point that even Paul Krugman makes is he's, he's not really sold on Piketty's story about the uh, – the bad side of that kind of inequality, because you know Piketty wants to tell this story that um, that the super rich have just gotten better at sort of extracting wealth from the workers. It's a sort of you know, even even Piketty might say this himself. It's a broadly it's a broadly Marxist story that there's some sort of surplus extraction going on here. The capitalists are exploiting the workers, but you know as Krugman points out in his review of this book, he says, "Hey, look, the inequality is rising most in the sector of the economy where you can actually watch people's performance." where the market seems to reward good performers and punish bad performers. That's these Wall Street financiers, hedge fund managers, people in top financial jobs. That's where inequality is exploding, and that's where we actually see a market test that these folks are, at least in some kind of broad sense, passing on a yearly basis. Yeah, the, the issue of executive compensation is a, is a controversial one. There's, there's people on both sides of the question. There, there are people who argue that trends in executive compensation are a racket. That is, that there's insider dealing mm -hmm. and that boards are, as I said, scratching each other's backs and uh, paying executives in, in anticipation of getting like treatment uh, when they're on the other side of the uh, equation. Yeah, so the irony there is that um, if, uh, if, these, if it is an insider deal, then the stockholders are the ones getting ripped off. The right. shareholders are the ones getting ripped off by these insider cozy corporate boards. And, and if they're not, if it's all above board and we're talking about a bunch of Steve Jobs who've gotten amazingly wealthy by making amazing things that we all like to buy, uh, then uh, th there's no outrage about that. There's zero outrage about sports stars and, uh, and actors making a lot more money today than they did uh, under the old studio system. Nobody cares. And so uh, really, I, I think this issue of what is the cause of inequality is, is ultimately very important because that's really what matters. Uh, and this is a larger point, uh, income inequality is this bottom line consequence of a jillion different factors that push this way and that, push towards income convergence, push towards income divergence. Some, some of those vectors are, are, are things that we would think are great. Some are things that we would think are baleful and, and, and terrible. Uh, but, but the bottom line number won't tell you what is influence, what the causes are. So we, the, the most comprehensive measure of income inequality is the Gini coefficient. Um, and um, so if you have a Gini coefficient of zero, uh, that means everybody makes exactly the same amount of money. If you have a Gini coefficient of one, that means one guy makes all the income and nobody make, else makes anything. So total inequality. Uh, the US Gini coefficient is about 0.45. A very close Gini coefficient to ours is that of Uganda, 0.44, a little more equal than we are. Uh, the difference is, uh, so we have the same level of inequality, uh, but the United States ranks number four on the U UN Human Development Index, and Uganda ranks 161 out of 187. So the Gini coefficient, the level of income inequality in a society, tells you precisely nothing, nothing. about the fairness or justice of the institutions there, how good the society is, et cetera. You have to dig down uh, to, the, to the causes. And if the causes are, are problematic, if indeed there is a racket in executive compensation, then let's deal with that. If the causes are things that we applaud, like greater opportunities for women in the workplace plus assortative mating, then we don't have to worry about it because we think those are good. that's a good social development. Now, uh, I'm going to close with, with this question. 
there is so much that's wrapped up in uh, arguments about inequality, and the people who uh, complain about it most seem to want to spin this story that, that you've described about perhaps corrupting the political process or getting better at uh, gaming, gaming the system. But beyond that, to the, to the general population who's confronted with these kinds of ideas, is it mostly just repugnance at the idea that there are rich people or is it, is it something deeper there? So I think there is a, there is a knee-jerk aesthetic repugnance at uh, people making obscene, that's the word we use, obscene amounts of money. It's disgusting to some people that, that anybody would make so much. Um, so that is going on. What are analytically serious objections to the to rising inequality? I think the, the one that, that has the most purchase on the left uh, is this fear uh, that we will have a self-sustaining plutocracy, a very small group of people who have a lot of money and they have so much money they can buy enough political power uh, to cement their position indefinitely. And so a, 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 a politicized elite that, uh, that is able to be immune from, uh, from politics because they own politics, that's, that's the fear. Uh, and just recently, uh, there was a paper that came out, uh, and I'm not sure if I can pronounce the author's names correctly. It's Gylans or Gylans and Page. Uh, and their paper came out in April, uh, and it's gotten a lot of attention. And basically, it's arguing uh, that economic elites uh, have much more influence over uh, public policy than average Americans. In fact, average Americans have almost no discernible influence on public policy, whereas economic elites uh, have a lot. Uh, a lot of commentary over the past couple of weeks has put that study and Piketty together and said, aha, the nightmare scenario is coming true. Uh, we, Piketty is telling us we're getting more unequal, and these guys are telling us that the elites have all the power. The problem is that they're, they proc their proxy for elite is people at the 90th income percent, percent 90th percentile of income, people making $146,000 a year. There's 30 million people somewhere in that group. So that's that's not... That's not a, a cabal of, of super rich. That's just well-educated professionals. Uh, and of course, uh, well-educated professionals know more about politics, have better informed views about politics, and have greater influence over because they're more involved in politics than, than uh, people in the bottom half of the distribution. And I'm sympathetic to the uh, Gillens and Page point, actually, because uh, for reasons that my colleague Brian Kaplan would note, which is that um, on average... Uh, the people in the in in the top ten percent tend to be quite socially tolerant, and compared to the average American, they're more pro-market. So, actually, having some influence from those folks in the political process uh, will lead us probably to some better economic outcomes. All right, we're going to leave it there. Garrett Jones, BB&T professor at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and Brink Lindsay, vice president for research at the Cato Institute and author of the book Human Capitalism. You can read more on inequality and related topics at our website, cato.org. Federal student aid is at the core of regulating higher education in the United States. But in order for students to use that aid, those schools must be accredited. But what happens when schools do something ideologically disfavorable? Neil McCluskey, the associate director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom, addressed that issue in April. As you've heard, and you're no doubt going to hear some more, accreditation has, at least over time, assumed this major gatekeeping role for uh, federal dollars. If you want to get federal student aid 
and almost every institution takes federal student aid. You have to go, as an institution, you have to be accredited. That's the only way that money can go there. And that money is substantial. So let me just try and put that into some context. In 1970, using inflation-adjusted dollars, total federal aid, including grants, loans, tax credits, et cetera, and there's, so there's lots of federal aid, uh, it, it accumulated to about $19 billion. So that's billion, that's pretty big. You know, so even today, billion still means something. But by 1995, so uh, 25 years later, it had ballooned to $52 billion, again, inflation-adjusted numbers. And by 2012, it had hit $170 billion. And $170 billion, even to the federal government, is still a pretty substantial amount of money. And so you can see this major federal investment that accreditors are helping to uh, make sure is used or try to make sure is used wisely. Now, of course, a lot of that growth is because you had big increases in enrollment. But even on a per-pupil basis, you see major increases in aid. So between 1990 and 2012, federal aid per full-time equivalent student rose from $3,143 to $9,445, so nearly a tripling on a per-pupil basis. So the job of accreditors, it seems, in the federal system is essentially to put a seal of approval on schools, sort of that good housekeeper seal of approval, so that federal dollars can then flow to that institution. That raises, though, some immediate problems, and I think the problems that we're going to try and focus on. What happens, for instance, when a school or an entire sector of schools does something wrong or does something politically unfashionable? So I think that arguably, of course, but I think you can, can conclude that a lot of the focus on for-profits, while there are lots of problems in the for-profit sector, much of it seems to be driven by more of an ideological animus to profit in higher ed. It's certainly not the only explanation. And that's largely political. How, if we have federal money going to colleges, do we avoid that sort of political-driven uh, policymaking? especially if there's a lot of federal money involved. Would we expect, if you have some big headline problem in a school that is already accredited, that politicians uh, will just leave accreditation alone to say, do what you were originally intended to do, work collegially with the institutions that are your members so that you can work together to improve? Or will they say, now we need to have compliance and punishment for bad actors? That seems to be the way that politics moves in response to even just anecdotal problems. So I don't think we can expect that the federal government will continue to allow accreditors to do what I think accreditors mainly want their job to be, which is to work with institutions to improve, not to be sort of the scold or the principal. Um, and I think since at least the mid-2000s, probably go beyond further back than that, but at least the mid-2000s, we've seen that the federal government has said the accreditor's role should increasingly be about compliance and punishment. Uh, uh, Doug mentioned the Spellings Commission, so again, we're talking about the mid-2000s. The goal was to establish a quote-unquote national strategy for higher education. They had this commission, commissioned, commissioned many papers. Many papers put accreditation sort of in the crosshairs to hold it responsible for many of the bad outcomes we had. The ultimate report that came from that commission certainly put responsibility on accreditors. And we've seen then that in this effort, and I think it was truly a well-intended effort, to root out lots of the waste and inefficiencies in higher education, said, look, accreditation has to become a lot more about compliance and conformity. 
Now, and that's a bad thing, certainly. I mean, I think our higher education system is really good relative to other systems in other countries, our K through 12 system, because you do have a lot of uh, independence for institutions. You can have a lot of innovation. You can have students who have different needs, different desires, finding institutions that specialize in those things. So you don't want this sort of uniformity. On the flip side, the Bush administration and to a large extent the Obama administration position was totally understandable. The sticker price of higher education, as we know, has skyrocketed for decades. Debt per, per, per student has increased markedly. Uh, you have large percentages of non-completers. There's lots of debate about how big it is, but you certainly have maybe a third. You could even have a half, depending on the numbers you look at, people who enter college who don't finish at least the program that they enter. Maybe they want individual courses. We don't have perfect information, but it's pretty reasonable to conclude we have a big non-completion problem. And then we have a major problem of underemployment for people who do complete. So about a third of people with a bachelor's degree earn a job that don't require that credential. So it's certainly not unreasonable to say there is, there are big efficiency problems in higher education. And since it's the federal government allocating so much of the money, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, not unreasonably said, we now need to rein in all these excesses. But that leaves you with sort of a bad choice. Do you impose uniformity and kill much of that specialization and independence that's so important? Uh, or do you stay hands off and then you let this really, I think many people perceive rampant waste in higher edu education continue unchecked? To me, the answer, and I hope the answer to everybody else here, is you should do neither. You don't want to crush the independence that makes higher education work so well, but you also don't want massive waste and inefficiency. Basically, the federal government, if federal government is going to be heavily involved, is left with those two choices, it seems to me. Um, now, I should note that this uniformity doesn't have to be imposed through accreditation. And we might be seeing that the federal government's going to work around accreditation. So the Obama administration proposed first that they will rate colleges based on various outcomes, uh, your, your, how much graduates are getting paid, whether or not they've paid back loans and things like that. And that seems to be an effort to work around accreditation, to say, we're going to establish these ratings. And the administration said, and we would like to, to ultimately connect your ability, your eligibility to take Title, title IV or student aid funds as a college based on how you do on these ratings. So maybe that'll be an end runaround. And I should say that many people, I think not unreasonably, think accreditors who have sort of a monopoly position, that they themselves often impose uniformity on schools, that they will try and sometimes to override boards of directors and things like that, because they have their own vision of what they think a college should be. Uh, but this sort of Sophie's choice between uniformity and efficiency remains as long as Washington is supplying so many of the dollars, which is why I don't think the root problem is accreditation. It's that the federal government, as I said, is supplying so much money to begin with, which ultimately cripples the natural check on excess that comes when people pay for something with their own money or money they voluntarily get from someone else. When we don't use our own money and when we get a lot of money from other places, we are not as inclined to say, maybe I don't need to pay for that recreation facility. Maybe I don't need to demand uh, the big recreation facility and classes that I only have to go to on a Monday or something like that. We are happier to accept the price of excess if we're not paying that full price. Um, and so the ultimate solution needs, I think, to be to phase out federal student aid. Now, obviously, politically, that's difficult. But I'd like to 
Hopefully we focus on the effects rather than just the politics. We need to make people pay with their own money. I think you'll see efficiency return. People, and we'll see people start to consume higher education that's back at normal prices, reasonable prices. Uh, and I don't think then that we'll have this threat to uniformity because you won't have a centralized payer. You'll have millions of individuals paying themselves. Then I think you'll see these new models that we're going to talk about in the second panel really start to function, and not just function, but thrive as people look for these more efficient, effective ways to deliver post-secondary education. Uh, and then I think accreditors can get back to doing what they were originally supposed to do, work with institutions voluntarily to help them improve, and then give them a badge of quality, but rather than working above them and forcing them into compliance. The IRS recently unveiled new rules to crack down on political activity by nonprofits, but the vagueness of those rules may well give rise to some negative consequences for speech about public affairs. David Keating is president of the Center for Competitive Politics. He spoke at the Cato Institute in March. We still don't obviously know exactly what happened at the IRS and what they did, but I think uh, the most likely aspect is the IRS was put under a lot of pressure. Uh, in fact, uh, Lois Lerner said in October 2010, quote, everyone is up in arms because they don't like it, meaning all the ads that were going on. Federal Election Commission can't do anything about it. They just want the IRS to fix the problem. Now, the uh, Center for Competitive Politics has a whole timeline uh, that Matt Neese, who's in the audience, our external relations director, developed. It's excellent. And it shows the kind of pressure the agency was under from Congress, from the administration, through its speeches. So it's not surprising if there wasn't any nefarious direction of the IRS by the Treasury Department or the White House uh, staff. But they can get what the bosses wanted. And the bosses in Congress, the bosses in the White House, clearly wanted the IRS to take action. So I don't think it's any surprise that they did. What they did, obviously, was outrageous and inexcusable. So what, what is the fundamental uh, pressure here? It's in pressure from people in power who want to get reelected. And that's really how you can explain a lot of campaign finance law. And I think, in part, what the IRS did here. Incumbents don't like criticism. They never have. They never will. It's human nature not to like criticism. So the fundamental human instinct is to try to shut down criticism or shut up criticism. And in this case, since the Congress wouldn't act, the FEC wouldn't act, the FCC wouldn't act, and the SEC wouldn't act, maybe the IRS would. And they did. Now, part of the reason why, and we heard a little bit from Gabe, uh, that the IRS has this facts and circumstances test that is used. As you might guess from the name of it, it's not doesn't give people a lot of guidance going in about what you can do if it depends on the facts and circumstances. And if it depends on the facts and circumstances, then it depends on who you're getting applying these facts and circumstances. 
I would not, for example, want to be a gay rights group that gets a born-again IRS auditor going over the facts and circumstances of what you've done. Because the facts and circumstances test is so elastic, you can cover virtually anything as political activity if you wanted to. So the rule that the IRS has been following in the past is hopelessly bad. It needs to be fixed. The proposed rule that they've come up with is so bad that virtually everyone thinks it's terrible. I think they've got to withdraw it and start all over again. I also want to point out, not only did the IRS totally ignore uh, the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, the key campaign finance decision, they ignored the Massachusetts Citizens for Life decision, Virtually every Supreme Court decision since 1976 on the First Amendment, the IRS didn't address at all in the proposed rulemaking in its explanation of it or any of the drafting of the rules itself. So the IRS clearly needs to go read some Supreme Court decisions before they try to write this rule again. The other thing the IRS may want to try to do is to read the federal laws that apply that they ignored in writing this. Uh, they ignored the Paperwork Reduction Act. They have a, a time estimate for complying with this law that everyone who studies this agrees is a total joke. The second thing is they, there's something called the Regulatory Flexibility Act that requires uh, initial regulatory flexibility analysis on any proposed rule. The IRS just said, we're exempt. This is not true. If you read the law itself, it says... When there's a notice of proposed rulemaking involving the internal revenue laws of the United States, the agency shall prepare and make available for public comment a regulatory flexibility analysis. They just said it doesn't apply. I don't know how they got that. The Administrative Procedure Act clearly states the IRS needs to follow some guidelines, which it specifically said in the rulemaking did not apply here either. The McCain-Feingold law passed uh, in early 2000s uh, has a specific provision on this 30-60-day rule that Gabe talked about. I'm going to quote from the law here itself. Obviously, the IRS didn't read this one either. Nothing in this subsection on electioneering communications may be construed to establish, modify, or otherwise affect the definition of political activities for purposes of the Internal Revenue Code. So what does the IRS do? They take the, the definition in McCain-Feingold and they make it more expansive when the law itself says they're not even supposed to use it at all to define political activity. This is another example of how these rules are a total uh, joke. Finally, the Federal Election Campaign Act says the Federal Election Commission and the IRS shall consult and work together to promulgate rules, regulations, and forms which are mutually consistent. And yet the IRS has proposed regulations with one set of definition of express advocacy, the FEC having another definition, one definition of political activity, the FEC having another. This is not my definition of mutually consistent. So the IRS needs to go back to the drawing board. They need to read the First Amendment. They need to read the Supreme Court decisions. And they need to read the laws they ignored in writing this particular proposal. Uh, now, if you want to read more about what's wrong with the proposal, uh, at our website, campaignfreedom.org, 
Uh, you can see this timeline I spoke of earlier, and you can also see all the notable comments filed by a wide spectrum of organizations. Some of the uh, legal analysis is truly spectacular. Many proposed, uh, many of the comments span 30 to 50 pages each and make uh, different points. Uh, I also wanted to note the comments done by the Alliance for Justice, and those of you who are tax nerds, uh, if you want to read something that's really spectacular, read the Alliance's comments. Uh, even I, someone who's very familiar with this area, my head was spinning when I finished reading them about how hopelessly complicated this area of the law is. And that, I submit, is one of the key problems. You look at the Constitution itself, and what does it say? On the First Amendment, presumably the most important amendment because it came first, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. It didn't talk about making a lot of complicated laws that you need to hire lots of fine lawyers to navigate what you're allowed to say about candidates. This is lunacy, what we've got here. We need to come up with something really simple. Uh, so when people want to talk about their government, petition their government, change their government, people can figure out what the law is and follow it. Uh, one, that means getting rid of a lot of these laws, and two, the ones that are left, putting huge exemptions in terms of the amount that you can spend before you have to try to figure out what these laws mean. So as far as what kind of rules we should have, I'll try to explain it in a minute, but it's fairly simple. The ACLU proposed this, our group proposed it, but basically if the IRS is going to define what political activity is, let's just follow what the Supreme Court has said. And the Supreme Court has said expressed advocacy, telling people to vote for or against a candidate. So that also means if your organization gives money to a party, gives money to a candidate, or tells people how to vote, that's political activity. That's a pretty clear line. It's something the Federal Election Commission already has rules on, and the IRS should just follow that. The other alternative, and I like this one even better, is for the IRS to just get out of the business altogether. It's a tax collection agency. Imagine if we asked the FEC to write a tax rule, what it would look like. It wouldn't probably look, the people at the IRS and tax lawyers would probably laugh at it. Well, the people in the campaign finance law are looking at this IRS rule and you know, they either laugh or they cry. They laugh because it's so hopelessly bad, they cry because it's actually a serious proposal by the Treasury Department. The immigration reform debate is increasingly polarized and has policymakers looking for new and innovative reform options. State or regionally managed guest worker visa programs, in addition to federal visas, should be considered as part of any immigration reform. Sheikha Dalmia of the Reason Foundation entertained the idea of state-based visas at the Cato Institute in March. I want to, in my time here, I want to basically focus on five non-economic benefits of, our, of a more federalized, state-based approach. And uh, <clears throat> David Letterman's style, I'll go from the least to the, you know, the most important. Uh, one is that it would uh, reduce federal coercion and encourage state cooperation. There is not only a mismatch between the kinds of immigrants that states want, but also the, the numbers in which they want it. There is a disagreement among states about how to actually handle immigrant flows. So consider two neighboring states, Arizona and Utah. 
Arizona wants to stop poor Mexicans streaming across its border, and Utah, Utah wants to redirect uh, this stream to its own borders. Both of them are at the mercy of Uncle Sam. Arizona is discovering that its efforts to snag undocumented aliens not only give it a reputation for nastiness, but also opens it to legal, legal lawsuits uh, from the feds uh, when it crosses its will. Meanwhile, Utah, whose legislature three years ago passed a compact asking Congress for a waiver to carry out a more compassionate and employer-friendly program, is still waiting for the go-ahead. There are two key aspects to Utah's program. One would allow illegals to stay in Utah as guest workers if they submit to a background check, pay a fine, and demonstrate a proficiency uh, in English. The other would let Utah residents sponsor undocumented immigrants in order to allow them to work in Utah. In a federalized approach where each state had more, to say, more say in setting its own immigration policy, the illegal problem could solve itself through mutual cooperation between the states, something that Brandon alluded to. They could have compacts, they could have, you know, three states could get together and agree to share the immigration population, you know, what have you. Utah's residents could sponsor, in this case, if they could get the federal government to give them permission, it could sponsor Arizona's illegals, taking them off Arizona's hands, allowing both states to get their preferred outcome. Arizona wouldn't be subjected to federal wrath, and Utah wouldn't be subjected to federal foot dragging. Both would have be able to control their immigration dest destinies a lot more, making the issue far less acrimonious and far more harmonious. The second uh, advantage of a federalized system would be, would be that it would make our immigration conversation more pleasant and humane without any self-righteous finger-wagging from progressives. One of the most striking aspects about the immigration debate in Canada and America is that they're totally opposite postures and tones. In America, the land of immigrants, ironically enough, immigrants have come to be regarded as foes of the country rather than its friends. The entire conversation is dominated by an enforcement-first approach, and, uh, you know, and the conversation is about you know, how to crack down on the illegals here, how to crack down on employers through an e-verify system, how many barbed fences would be enough, and if we can get the immigrants here to self-deport, voluntarily self-deport. I think that was Mitt Romney's uh, term of art. In Canada, however, the focus is on how do we recruit the people we want. While America is busy building fences, Canadian provinces are dispatching recruiters all over the world, selling their provinces to prospective residents, kind of like companies go around college campuses recruiting uh, students. Uh, the beauty of the PNP program is that it hasn't made provinces immigrant-friendly by singing John Lennon's Imagine to them. It has given provinces more control over their immigration policies and changed their incentives. Provinces are certainly free to turn away immigrants if they don't want them. But doing so comes with an economic price because businesses are likely to locate to those places where labor is more plentiful. This will mean loss of jobs, tax revenue, population for uh, places that are more hostile to immigrants. Because provinces can control immigration flows to avoid strain on their public goods, there is no downside to immigration from, for them, only an upside. Hence, they compete with each other to spread out the welcome mat rather than build more walls. Uh, it would change our immigration conversation com considerably from enforcement to recruitment if we could move to a state-based system. The third reason to allow for a, for a federalized system would be that it would allow the states to answer their own 
existential question as to which void they want immigrants to fill for them. In America, various factions are always warring over what exactly the purpose of immigration policy is. Some believe that immigrants should be recruited to fill some precise economic need. Others advocate a strong focus on family re reunification in order to strengthen and honor America's commitment to the institution of the family. Rehan has written very powerfully about the need for prioritizing high-skilled immigration over family-based one. Under a more federalized system, each day state can decide for itself. Now, one caveat that uh, Brandon alluded to and I'll mention, ultimately, I believe with the exception of minor children or elderly parents, most immigrants come to Canada or America for economic opportunity. There is really no other reason. I mean, even those who come here for asylum purposes wouldn't stay here if there wasn't an economic climate uh, that could absorb them. So if economic opportunities don't exist in certain places, immigrants are unlikely to come, or if they come, they won't stay. This is why immigration flows are actually fairly self-regulating. But that's also the reason I'm very skeptical about the workability of Michigan Governor Rick Snyder's scheme to recruit immigrants for urban renewal purposes in Detroit. But just because immigrants want to come for economic reasons does not mean that states can't have some other purpose as well in mind when they try to recruit them. So in example, for, for example, in Canada, provinces recruit immigrants with an eye towards nurturing or strengthening some ethnic, cultural, or linguistic end. Quebec wanted to import more French speakers in order to buttress the French-speaking population. Other provinces have large German and Eastern European populations, and they want to uh, strengthen their cultural ties with those parts of the world and also provide a support base for the new immigrants and allow them to be more successful. So they go to those countries to recruit. Now, one might disagree with some of these ends, and I certainly do, but nobody can disagree that you know it's a good thing that provinces have the flexibility to choose their ends. In America, on the other hand, Uncle Sam decides for all state what states what their ends are to be, and everybody has to then fall in line. Uh, the fourth reason for why this would be a good system is it would actually turn states into laboratories of democracy on immigration policy, as sort of the founders envisioned. If you've been covering immigration for as long as I have, you know that yet another study on whether immigrants complement native skills or compete with them, create or cost native jobs, will not settle this debate. The, the evidence that scientific studies produce, while important, always has and always will be contested when policy is based on it, especially when the stakes are, are high and people can't out, opt out of whatever it is that Washington decides for them. In a federalized system, each state will be, will be able to field test its own hunch. And if two very comparable states like Utah and Arizona opt for widely different immigration approaches, we'll get something resembling a controlled lab experiment in the real world whose results will be instructive for everyone. My, you know, this is completely hypothetical, but I would imagine that over time immigration policies of various states would converge as states voluntarily, voluntarily emulate the lessons of their more successful years. It might take many decades for this to play out, but the end result will be achieved with relatively less acrimony than if the federal government had tried to impose the same solution top down. Now, that's how it's actually played out on the right to work issue. I don't know how, much, how many of you follow uh, you know, uh, union uh, 
battles, but I live in Michigan, so it's unavoidable for me. Um, after the federal government enacted the Taft-Hartley Taft Act in 1947, allowing states to opt out of closed shop arrangements, southern states became right-to-work while northern states opted to remain union shops. In right-to-work states, union can't unions can't forcibly extract dues from workers as a condition of employment. This considerably weakens the hold of unions in the workplace. So as manufacturing and industry have located south to take advantage of a more business-friendly, hospitable environment, northern states have had to rethink their pro-union policies. Even Michigan, a union stronghold. Ten years ago, it would have been unimaginable that it would be a right-to-work state, and yet two years ago, it became a right-to-work state. Um, in a federalized approach, if a federalized approach worked for employers on the manufacturing end, it's likely that it would work for labor on the other end. Uh, and the fifth and the last reason for why a federalized approach will be good is because it'll put Uncle Sam in a limited and confined space. One of the most attractive features of the PNP program in Canada is uh, that it lives up to American principles of limited government and liberty. Immigrants should be based on, immigration should be based on the socioeconomic needs of a country's residents, not the arbitrary whims of central planners. What makes an economist isn't a high-level degree. It's this skill at telling us something about the world. Tim Harford tells many of those stories in The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. At the Cato Institute in January, Harford told the astonishing, wide-ranging tale of economist Bill Phillips, who Harford describes as the Indiana Jones of economics. I wanted to do something a little different with The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. I wanted to talk about a subject that I don't need to make the case that macroeconomics is important. We've all seen that the hard way over the past six or seven years. But a subject that's not only important, but genuinely interesting, weird, fascinating, flawed, without a doubt flawed, but really has something to offer. If only we can spare the time and the patience to try to figure out how it all works. Uh, and to leave aside not only the absurd uh, claims, not only the jargon, but also the politics. Because frankly, I'm, I'm bored of it, and I suspect some of you may be bored of it too. And today I thought just, just to give you a flavor of the book and to give Alex something to, to criticize or to compliment as he wishes, um, I, I'd tell you a little story about one of the key characters in the book. And the story begins uh, just before Christmas in 1949 in London, the London School of Economics. It's a seminar room. And all the great and the good of British economics are in the room. Lionel Robbins, who ran the LSE's economics department for many years, had been trying to set up a rival to John Maynard Keynes's Cambridge. Keynes was dead. Robbins had been recruited. Uh, he brought in people uh, such as James Meads, the great trade theorist who did so much to steer the British economy through the Second World War, Arthur Lewis, the great development economist, um, Friedrich, Friedrich Hayek, you may have heard of him, uh, and really great economists that have been brought in to try to make the LSE the cutting edge of economic thought. But on this particular day, the person giving the seminar wasn't some hotshot professor who'd been uh, transported over from Harvard or for, from Vienna. Um, it was a mature student from New Zealand he was incredibly nervous. Uh, he was giving his seminar with a, with a cigarette between his fingers, just occasionally 
smoking away, just trying to calm his nerves, because he knew um, that everything depended on this seminar. His academic future depended on this seminar. And he also knew that his academic record was extremely poor. He was failing all of his exams. And yet somehow, Lionel Robbins had been persuaded that, that this was the man who needed to be invited to give this seminar. And all of the LSE professors showed up to see this young man speak uh, because they'd heard rumors that he was gonna do something odd, notable, um, worth discussing, something maybe extraordinary, maybe ridiculous. And they wanted to see it, maybe have a bit of a laugh. The man's name was Alban William Phillips, Bill Phillips. And he'd been born about 35 years earlier in Terahunga, which is a rural part of a rural country, New Zealand. His dad was a dairy farmer. And the farm on which Bill grew up was the only one in the area to have uh, electric light, to have flushed lavatories. Um, this wasn't because Bill's father was rich. It's because Bill's father was an engineer. He was a tinkerer. And he liked to solve problems. He liked to take things apart and he liked to put things together. And he gave that same uh, enthusiasm for tinkering to Bill. So he taught Bill to make his own toys. He taught Bill to make his own little radio sets. And um, Bill started developing his own inventions. So the, the first one, of course, is as, as useful as a lot of modern macroeconomics. He, he built a, a bicycle stand, uh, a sort of book stand to go on the front of his bike. Now, Bill had to cycle nine miles to a railway station, get a train to the nearest town, go to school, get the train back to the station, pick up his bike and cycle nine miles home to the farm. So there's a bit of a faff. And so this book stand was going to allow him to put his favorite novels and textbooks and so on on his bike while he cycled. To be honest, it wasn't a great success. Um, <laughs> but then pretty soon he did actually graduate to, to more successful projects. And at one stage, he did something that I think um, symbolizes something important about Bill Phillips. He heard that a neighbor had this broken down truck and everybody in the neighborhood had given up on this thing. It was never going to run again. So Bill got hold of it, and he popped open the hood, and he had a look, and he said to himself, well, I've got to be able to figure out what's wrong here. I've got to be able to figure out how this works. And that's what he did. He set himself the task of understanding how the engine worked. And when he'd finished understanding how the engine worked, he fixed the truck. He got it going. He was 14 years old. And Bill used to drive his friends just all the way to school and they'd park around the corner so the teachers didn't see them. And uh, then they'd drive all the way home. That was Bill Phillips. He left school at 15. He didn't go to university. And the main reason he didn't go to university was because of his first brush with why economics and the economy is important. The Great Depression had started. And it started with this seizing up of flows of finance on Wall Street. And already the scrabbling fingers of this economic crisis were reaching all the way around the world, pulling down dairy prices, even in New Zealand. Suddenly, Bill's mum and dad didn't have enough money to send him to university. He needed to go out and get a job instead. And he, his first job was working on a hydroelectric dam. He taught himself engineering via mail order while working on this hydroelectric dam. But pretty soon, he decided he was going to leave New Zealand. And there's this... Uh, line in the Wall Street Journal review of Freakonomics that says, Steve Levitt is the Indiana Jones of economics, which is a nice line. And I, I like Steve Levitt, and I like Freakonomics. But I don't think it's true. I don't think Steve Levitt is the Indiana Jones of economics. 
Bill Phillips is the Indiana Jones of economics. Because in between showing up at the London School of Economics and leaving New Zealand, he worked as a self-taught busker, he set up a, an open-air cinema, he worked as a, a gold miner, a crocodile hunter, arrested by the Japanese accused of spying, you know, the usual things you do on a year out. And eventually, after riding the Trans-Siberian Railway, he finally, after all these adventures, ended up at the London School of Economics and signed up not only for a, an engineering degree at the LSE, but also for the British Royal Air Force. Almost immediately, war broke out, and he was sent all the way back across the other side of the world to participate in the defense of Singapore. And Bill was still an engineer. He was still a tinkerer. He was still trying to solve problems. So the first problem he wrestled with was how to get the machine guns on these terrible old planes the British Army had in Singapore, how to get the machine guns lined up with the propellers so you could fire through the propellers without hitting your own plane, which is not a good idea. And he'd heard that in, in Europe, you know, the cutting edge planes used by the Germans and the British actually worked like this, but the Singaporean planes they were using, they were well out of date and they didn't do this. And Bill managed to, with very limited tools and frankly, frighteningly limited aviation experience, managed to get this working, managed to get the planes firing the way modern planes did. Uh, the British surrendered Singapore pretty quickly and Bill was on the last uh, refugee ship leaving Singapore with civilians. And he was uh, in charge of the weaponry on board the ship. And pretty soon the Japanese Air Force found them and they started dive bombing the ship. It was designed to hold cargo and five passengers. There were actually 2,000 women and children on the ship. And Bill had a machine gun, but he didn't have a machine gun stand. So he, he disappeared below deck and somehow improvised from, I, I don't know, toothpaste and snot or something, put together a machine gun stand, came back up, stood on the deck, single-handedly, this heavy machine gun and this improvised stand fighting off the Japanese Air Force. And he, he later won a medal for bravery for that. But he, in the end, he ended up in a, a prison camp and he, the tinkering continued. So he made these tiny radios. He made a radio so small you could fit it in the heel of a clog. Remember, this is the 1940s. This is really a long time before iPods. And he's working with whatever he can find in a prisoner of war camp. And somehow he manages to do this. If he'd been caught, he would probably have been executed. But he thought it was really important that the prisoners had news of what was going on in the outside world. He also uh, built a little immersion heater. He, actually, he built dozens of them to make cups of tea. This is very important. Uh, British Empire at stake. And he made so many of them that every evening the, the Japanese would notice that the, the lights in the prison camp were dimming. <laughs> this was Bill Phillips drawing enough electricity to make 2,000 cups of morale-boosting tea. He really was a remarkable, remarkable man. The darkest episode of Bill's war was when he and his fellow prisoners were moved to a different camp. And they didn't know where it was, they didn't know what was going on, but they had a pretty good idea because the first thing they were ordered to do was to dig these large mass graves in the middle of the camp. And they could see the machine guns on the walls pointing inwards. But Bill had another problem. His clog radio had broken. So Bill and the novelist Lawrence van der Post, who was in the camp with him, and a third man, an officer called Donaldson, came up with a foolproof 
scheme to fix the radio. And when I tell you about it, I think you'll agree it's risk-free. They were going to break into the Japanese camp commander's office in the middle of the night, take apart his radio, take the part out of his radio, and then, this is the genius bit, because that would look suspicious, then they would take the faulty part from Bill's radio, install that in the Japanese camp commander's radio, reassemble the Japanese camp commander's radio, put it all back together. And the genius of this is that when the Japanese came in and switched their radio on, they realized it was faulty, they'd take it apart, they'd see the faulty component, and they'd order a replacement. So this would be the gift that kept on giving. They could do this again and again and again. Really, really thinking very long term for three men who just dug their own grave. Bill fixed his radio, and he plugged it in, and the first thing that he heard was the news that the Americans had dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And the war was about to end. And when he got back to the London School of Economics, he decided he didn't want to study engineering anymore. His priorities had changed. I mean, he had, after all, taken the mother of all years out. He switched to sociology. He wanted to understand why people could do these terrible things to each other. And I apologize if there are any sociologists in the audience, but. Um, Turns out he found sociology a bit disappointing. It wasn't so hot on the causes and consequences of World War II. But he did take a few modules in economics. Actually, Bill wasn't hugely impressed with economics either. Um, he, he didn't think it answered important problems. But he did notice one thing that did fascinate him. James Mead, his lecturer, was drawing these differential equations on the board. I mean, economists at the time loved differential equations. Economists still love differential equations. They're great. We can't get enough of them. And he noticed these differential equations, and he, he recognized them. They were very similar to the equations he had been learning from his distance degree in engineering, his mail-order engineering course, and that he'd been using in the hydroelectric power station. They were describing flows of water through pipes and sluice gates and and over barriers and through turbines. It's the same, it's basically the same stuff. And he went to James Mead, and you have to understand, he's failing every exam at this point because he just doesn't really care. He went to James Mead and he said, I've got an idea. I want to rework your principles of economics lectures as a study in plumbing. And Mead said, by the way, if any of you are failing your exams, you may want to try this with your professors, just, yeah. just a thought. Because Mead said, OK, off you go. And Bill took the summer off, disappeared to a, a lock-up garage in Croydon, belonged to his landlady, and with a colleague, Walter Newlin, he built a machine. And it was this machine that Bill was demonstrating. A few weeks before Christmas, 1949, all the greats of the economics profession are there. And Bill unveils what looks a little bit like an exercise machine for goldfish. You've got these perspex tanks, and they're connected together by pipes and pumps and sluices and dams, and they're filled with water. The water's stained pink, so you can see it more clearly. And they've got floats in them. The floats are attached to pegs, and the pegs run through these carefully carved slots so that as the level of water in a tank rises, the, the float might, may move from one side or the other side. You can actually carve out a curve, in, literally carve a curve, in the side of the perspex. And um, the, the tanks are labeled with things such as uh, consumption or um, government expenditure, taxation, exports, 
imports. And at the bottom, there's a huge tank that reads national income. And Bill reaches around the back of the machine and he switches on this fuel pump that he scavenged from a wartime bomber. In fact, he scavenged the entire machine from a wartime bomber. And the, the food pump is wearing, fuel, fuel pump is wearing away like a food processor. And as the water gets pumped up and starts to flow down through this machine, Bill explains to these astonished economists that what he's built is the first ever computer model of a national economy. And after about five minutes, the conversation quickly turns to how Bill Phillips can be given a professorship at the London School of Economics. I, I love the story about Bill, and I love the story about his machine. Uh, although the story has a, a sad end, I think, that we can come to. Uh, the reason I, I like the Phillips machine is not because it's a good model of an economy. I think we can all agree that an economy is a lot more complicated than a bunch of interconnected fish tanks. But I love the, the way he tried to show something very important about the way a macroeconomy works, that everything is connected to everything else. You've got to see the system as a whole. We've already mentioned um, Frederick Bastiat, his famous essay, What is Not Seen. We were constantly being led astray in economics by uh, reactive forces that are going on behind the back of our heads as we, as we look at some particular phenomena. And Bill said, no, I want, to, I want to put it all in front of you. I want you to see everything that matters. You can see all these things flowing together. And that's a very important fact about any successful macroeconomic model. It's got to have that property of showing the system as a whole working. And it became a wonderful teaching aid. Um, Bill used to use it to teach macroeconomics. James Mead used to plug two machines together. He'd plug the export pipe to the import pipe and the import pipe into the export pipe. And he'd, he'd get two students out to the front of the lecture theater and he'd say, right, you're the chairman of the Federal Reserve. You're the governor of the Bank of England. Manipulate interest rates and let's see what happens. Water all over the floor is fantastic. One of the, um, one of the students he pulled out and, and asked to pretend to be chairman of the Federal Reserve was a very tall, young American Rhodes Scholar by the name of uh, Paul Volcker. So it was a pretty good teaching aid. Now, what happened next is to me, a shame. Because if you ask anyone who's done an undergraduate degree in economics about Bill Phillips, they will know nothing about the Japanese Air Force. They will know nothing about the medal, nothing about the prison camp. They may know about the Phillips machine, but they're regarded as this sort of quaint, antiquated, who, who on earth would make a, a computer made of water these days? These days, we have, we have computer models that are much more complicated. And, and even better, you, have, you can't see how they work. So that's, that's obviously an advantage. Um, <laughs> much less transparent. Um, so it seems very quaint. It doesn't seem like an important thing. But th there, is, there is one thing that people do know about Bill Phillips. Bill Phillips is the discoverer of the Phillips curve. And Bill Phillips observed the Phillips curve, which is a correlation between uh, roughly speaking, between inflation and unemployment. It's slightly different than that, but that's the basic idea. Inflation is high, unemployment's low. When inflation is low, unemployment is high. And he put together some, some diagrams, he, he, he uh, draft paper, and he showed it to some colleagues. And they got very, very excited about it. They said, you've got to publish this. This is very important. And he said, well, I don't think so. It's, it's a rush job. 
It's just a correlation. But his colleagues insisted, and the Phillips curve became the most cited journal article in the history of macroeconomics. Paul Samuelson, the great American economist, picked up the Phillips curve and he championed this idea that governments could choose a point on this curve. You could choose high inflation, low unemployment, or you could choose low inflation, high unemployment. It's up to you. It's a political choice. But you certainly have the power to choose from these menu of options. And a lot of economists championed that idea. And then something happened in the late 1960s. Milton Friedman and Edmund Phelps, and then shortly afterwards, Robert Lucas, all published very powerful critiques of the Phillips curve. And they said, it, it, sure, it's an impressive correlation, but it's just a correlation. You really have no idea of the underlying, underlying behavior that's driving it. And if you don't understand the underlying behavior that's driving it, you don't really understand it, and you can't rely on it. Uh, there's a famous example uh, from Tom Sargent, who said it, it's, it's like um, trying to prevent people from kicking the ball in American football. Um, I'm not going to explain American football to you guys. I'm hoping that you know it better than I do. But you know that if you get four downs, you get four attempts, and in the fourth attempt, if you haven't got the ball far enough forward, you will concede possession. And so the incentive is to just kick the ball, get rid of the ball, get it down the field. Now, let's say the, the regulatory authorities of, of the game wish to prevent punting. They don't want people to kick the ball away. Well, the, the Bill Phillips, the Phillips curve style analysis says, let's look at the data. The data says they don't punt on the first down, they don't punt on the second down, they don't punt on the third down, they always punt on the fourth down, let's abolish the fourth down. That should fix it. And you see, you make completely the wrong policy judgment if you don't understand the incentives. It doesn't matter how good the data look, how convincing the correlation is. If you don't understand what's going on under the surface, you're going to get things wrong. And that's what Phelps and Friedman and Lucas said was true about the Phillips curve. And then something even more important happened, the oil crisis of the 1970s. And Phillips curve style, Keynesian macro, completely failed. And the Phillips curve itself fell apart dissolved into the air. And at that point, I think something quite damaging happened to macroeconomics. Macroeconomics started treating the data like an unfaithful spouse. We trusted this person all these years. They seemed to be constant. And then when we really needed them, they betrayed us. And that's how economics started to feel about, you know, Facts. You can't trust them. They, they seem useful, but you can't trust them. And then, for a long while, macroeconomics turned its back on facts and focused instead on internal consistency. Let's just understand the behavioral parameters. Let's understand what's going on under the surface. And then, once we've sorted that little problem out, it can't take too long. Then we'll go back and we'll look at the facts again. And unfortunately, we're still working on the internal consistency, and we're having trouble resolving it with facts about the world. And I think economics is, is starting to turn outward again and, and are very important and useful pieces of work being done. But I think that was a very damaging episode for macro. And into, unless you understand how it happened and why it happened, the flaws of macro just seem incomprehensible. It just seems that why would you ignore the data? Well, there is a reason. I don't, I don't advocate ignoring the data. I think it was a mistake. But there was a reason. It wasn't crazy.
Whether you are new to or well-versed in the subject of liberty and individual freedom, Cato University is a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity to explore the fundamental ideas and values of the American Republic with scholars and participants from around the world. This year's program will be held at the beautiful Rancho Bernardo Inn just a few miles north of San Diego from July 27th through August 1st. For more information, visit catouniversity.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.